Good morning and welcome to Madison Church Online. My name is Stephen and I am the lead pastor of Madison Church and we are just so grateful that you're joining us whether it is your first time, first time in a long time or a hundred and first time. We live in a day and age in which fake news regularly fills our feeds. I mean, not just fake news, but talking about fake news as well. No one can write anything without it being accused of being fake news. It has become a regular narrative in our society. And while it certainly isn't all good, it's not all bad either, As a society, we're waking up to this idea that a lot of people can write things and a lot of people can put things on the internet. And we, as readers, need to kind of look into it and who is writing this and why are they writing it and what are they saying and what's objective and what's subjective. Essentially, what we're looking for when we read articles or watch the news is we're looking and checking for reliability, Reliability will be the word of the day as we continue our series, Making Sense of God. Since we opened up this location on Jennifer Street six weeks ago now, we have been in a long series called Making Sense of God. And what this series has been for us is a time to ask hard questions, tough questions, the challenging things that you're wondering about maybe on a daily or weekly basis. And we wanted to have a conversation about those questions here in church, not to kind of build up straw men or toss ourselves softballs so we can give easy can, the Bible told me so, Sunday school answers, but so we could dive in deep and see that you can be an intellectual and rational person of faith And so that's what we've been doing. Uh, So far, we've asked questions like, does life have a purpose? Why does God allow pain and suffering? And last week, Jason talked about, is Jesus God? And all of these talks, I think, have been um, really fun. What we've discovered is that usually there's not one right answer, but rather there are a few different acceptable answers, um, depending on your point of view and the angle in which you want to take. Now, today's question, um, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? And for the last few weeks, all of the things that we've been talking about have kind of hinged on the Bible being reliable. I mean, is Jesus God? When we look into the text of the Bible, well, if the Bible isn't reliable, then what we're reading about Jesus isn't reliable. And so today is a big topic. It's a hard topic, but we're going to dive into it. It is a topic that I myself used to struggle with. Um, quite a bit. It was very hard for me to wrap my mind around our Bible and all of the questions that I had about its reliability. Again, that's what we're talking about today. Is the Bible reliable? If you're unfamiliar, the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by uh, over 40 authors over a period of over a thousand, thousand years in three different languages and continents. Now, we said it every week, and I'll just say it again. The goal of the series is not to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong or that we believe the one right way, but rather it's to come together and explore God in community with one another. Now, by the end of this talk, I hope that I have thoroughly covered enough angles 
that you feel comfortable believing in the reliability of the Bible. But if you don't, or if you're not sure, we get to the end of this time and you're still not sure, what I would like you to know is that you don't have to believe in the Bible's reliability to believe in God. You do not have to believe in the Bible's reliability to believe in God. Now, that might sound controversial. I assure you, it is not. Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, just to name a few of the spiritual giants of our faith from the Old Testament, were spiritual giants who believed in God without any parts of the Bible. The Old Testament was written after they died. Peter, James, and John, just to name a few more, people who are friends and followers of Jesus, believed in Jesus, carried on his legacy, but they did not have the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't written until after Jesus's death and resurrection. As recently as last year, it's reported, widely reported, that China is closing churches, jailing pastors, and rewriting the scriptures. And yet the church has continued to flourish underground in that country. Additionally, nowhere else in the Bible or nowhere in the Bible itself does it say that you have to believe in the Bible to believe in God. So again, that sounds controversial, but it's not. But what I want you to know is that you can believe in God and and not be sure where you land on this whole Bible thing. Now, do I think the Bible is useful? Absolutely. It claims to be useful, and I've seen that in my own life. I absolutely positively believe that. When we open up the Bible and read it, we find ourselves, you and I, ordinary people living in Madison, Wisconsin, or wherever you're listening or watching, when we open up the Bible, we find ourselves in the grander story of God. We see how God has pursued people and how he continues to pursue us today. But today's topic isn't, is the Bible useful? Today we're asking, is the Bible reliable? And that's a big question. And it's really hard to know where to start. Remember, 66 books, 40 authors, thousands of years, different languages. And so rather than keep you here for the next 10 hours as we talk about that, I want to pick out a small section of the Bible, a very important section of the Bible, our Gospels, and I want to look at them and see if they are reliable. Can the biographies of Jesus be trusted? That's kind of the question I want to ask. I feel like if we can establish that the biographies of Jesus, these four Gospels, are reliable, that the other ones will follow suit using the same type of reasoning. But we're going to start with the Gospels because um, they point us straight to Jesus. They're about Jesus's life. And I think that because of those reasons, it's the right place to start. And so we have four Gospels. Um, Let's talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew was a tax collector, but he was also one of Jesus's disciples. He followed Jesus. He writes as an eyewitness to the things that he's claiming happened. Mark is a traveling companion to Peter, and Peter, who was another eyewitness to Jesus's life and ministry. We have Luke, a historian who thoroughly researched, like an investigative journalist, went around town to town talking to people who were eyewitnesses to write his gospel. And so, 
what I think, though, is probably most profound about Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that none of those guys were household names at the time. Now, I know for us in 2020, you're familiar. You've probably heard Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've probably read some of the things that they have written. But consider 2,000 years ago. Those guys weren't in Jesus's inner circle. They weren't major players in the church world. They were relatively nobodies. And yet there's no dispute between Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they wrote the gospels that they claim to have written. We have several different historical checkpoints in which people writing history say, yep, Matthew wrote this. Yep, Luke wrote that. Yep, Mark wrote this. Now, you might notice that I've been leaving one out, and that is John. John is the only one that is contested. And get this, it's because we're not 100% sure if it's this John or that John. Was it John the apostle of Jesus, or was it John an elder in the church later on? We're not quite sure. It's different, but still not really. We know it was a John. We're just not sure which of the two Johns it was. And so what happens then is, and and this is why it's interesting, at least to me, and I, I think you might find it interesting, is that later on when fakes would begin to circulate, when fake gospels, fake biographies of Jesus would begin to circulate, they would use household names. I mean, even household names for thousands of years ago, they would use the name Mary or James. They would use Thomas or Judas. Because in trying to make the fake seem credible, they would use names that would appear to be more credible. And so what's fascinating about this is that we have these three biographies or these four biographies of Jesus written by relatively obscure people at the time that check out, that it's legit, that they did what they said they were going to do. Now compare that to Alexander the Great. I think it's important that we compare it to other areas, not just in the religious sector, but compare that to other historical um, events and people. Alexander the Great, we only have one account of his life. Four of Jesus, one of Alexander the Great, and the one that was written about Alexander the Great was written over 400 years after he had died. The first writing about Alexander the Great happened over 400 years. By historical criticism standards, and that's a boring term for how people determine whether or not a historical writing is legit or not, by historical criticism standards, Alexander the Great story, it still checks out, even only having one source 400 years later. Compare that to Jesus, four accounts written by eyewitnesses within a generation of his time on earth. If treated the same way as Alexander the Great and other historical documents that we have said that check out, there is no reason to believe that we should not accept the gospel writers and the life of Jesus. Now, conservatively speaking, we can say that Luke was written. When were the Gospels written? We can conservatively say that Luke was written around 60 AD. And that's because Paul is the main character or the main person, if you will, in Luke's second volume, Acts. So he writes Luke, the gospel, but he also writes Acts. And in Acts, he kind of follows Paul on all of these missionary journeys. He leaves Paul. If you go to the end of Acts, what we find is that he leaves Paul in Rome living as a missionary. This is interesting because Paul dies in 60 AD. Now, 
if Paul dies, that's kind of a natural end to Acts. But since Luke leaves him as a missionary in Rome, it's reasonable to think that Paul hadn't died at the time that Luke had finished his writing. Now, we, again, we know Paul died in 60 AD, so we got to backdate Luke uh, at least before 60 AD. We also know that Luke borrowed material from Mark. So now we got to backdate Mark further than Luke, when we know that Paul's writings actually happened before all of these things had happened. We're talking within a decade, just reasonably speaking, within a decade of Jesus's death and resurrection that we have gospels being written. We have Paul's letters being written. Paul's letters, which contain a lot of the theology that we use today, being written in a very short span of time. There's nothing else in history that compares to this. It's a really big deal. Um, Homer's Iliad was written in 800 BC, but the earliest copy we have of the Iliad was 400 years later. Um, Again, just quite remarkable on how when you compare it to other historical documents that we consider valid today, if you are going to throw out the Gospels and say that um, they don't mat- make your historical criticism, you are actually going to have to, if you follow your logic and reasoning, throw out a lot of the history that you learned about the world because it's less reliable than what we have of the Gospels. Now, the question maybe you're not thinking like that. Maybe you're, you're like, okay, that's fine. Your question might be, but have they been preserved for us in 2020? You're like, I I have no dispute that Luke had written this then and Mark had written that then and it was written by those guys who claimed that they were. But Stephen, that was 2,000 years ago. Do they still hold up today? Now we're getting getting into another way to verify the credibility of historical documents. And that is to consider how many documents we have of a particular writing. The more copies that we have of a particular writing, the more we can check to see if various copies have begun to drift from the original kind of source writings as they copied them by hand from one to the other to the other so that more people could have these things. Um, For the New Testament to date, and I say to date because we continue to find more and more copies of the New Testament as we do archaeology. To date for the New Testament, we have 6,000 manuscripts. 6,000 manuscripts of the Bible. Now, you don't have any context for that. Is that a lot? Back to the Iliad. We have 1,800 copies to date of the Iliad and just 31 copies of the Annals. All of this tells us that the principles, um, that by the principles of historical criticism, the four Gospels might be the most historically accurate and reliable documents that we have in that era following Jesus' life and teaching. Now, okay, I've given you a lot, that there's thousands of copies, that they were written in a close period of time, and that by all considerations of historical criticism that these check out. Now, maybe you're fine with that, okay? And maybe you're not. Maybe you're still wrestling with that. I encourage you to look up a book, uh, Case for Christ. It was really impactful for me, written by Lee Strobel. And this book, Case for Christ, examines more in-depthly 
the Bible and is it legit or not? And he interviews different experts that know way, way, way more than I know about this subject. But let's say that you're someone who accepts the, that the Gospels are accurate. The next thing that we need to do as we're looking into the greater New Testament and the greater Bible here is to say, what does the Bible say about itself? Because there are a lot of people who say things about the Bible that the Bible isn't willing to say about itself. It's quite interesting to be a pastor and a church leader and to hear other people talk about the Bible or make claims about the Bible that the Bible itself doesn't claim to make. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about what the Bible does say about itself. Let's look at the one of the strongest and most well-known statements we find in the Bible about the Bible. So when Paul writes, God has breathed life into all scripture. Now this is, uh, this God breathed life is actually a really super long Greek word, which is two Greek words put together. Um, one is, uh, means God and the other one refers to breathing. Okay. And this word in Greek is so rare. It doesn't show up anywhere else. It only shows up in the second Timothy three sixteen passage when Paul is talking about the Bible. It doesn't show up anywhere else. This concept of God breathed life into anything, but it does show up in your Old Testament. It does show up in Hebrew. When we go back and we trace the origin words of this Greek word that we're studying, when the the root words of them, we go back to Genesis 2, actually. So almost right away, at the very beginning of the story, we find these words appearing again. Then we don't see them for thousands of years again until Paul uses them to describe the Bible. And in Genesis 2-7, we read that God breathed the breath of life into a man's nostrils and the man became a living person. Interesting, isn't it? We get this concept two times. And the first time is when God is looking at the man who is lifeless as we understand it. Um, he's just there and God breathes life into him and he is alive. And then we see it again in which Paul is writing and he says, the scriptures are God breathed. It's powerful imagery. It has a profound meaning. In the one story, there's a person who is physically lifeless and God breathes life into him. And in the other story, there are a collection of writings. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament is being formed and God breathes life into them. What the Bible is saying about itself, and Paul acknowledges in other places that he knows he is writing what will be scripture. What Paul is saying about the Bible, and as we read it, is that we are reading a living thing. This isn't just ink on paper or words on an iPad. This isn't an inanimate object that we're talking about when we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about something that God has breathed life into, and there's nothing else like it. That's why the word doesn't show up anywhere else. There is nothing else like it. When we engage the Bible, we are engaging the living word of God. It isn't a static document. It is dynamic, and it can speak to us in different ways at different times. A passage that you have known your entire life might make sense to you today or next year or in 10 years or speak profoundly to a situation that you find yourself in in five years or in 50 years. And the reason being is because it is a dynamic living document. So we have thousands of copies 
right around Jesus's life that have been passed on. We find that historically speaking that they check out. The Bible says it's the living document. So what does that mean for us practically? Because it's so important that we don't just get information, right? It's really more important that we wrestle with these ideas and we say, well, what are we going to do with them? What is the Bible reliable for, in other words? What is the Bible reliable for? Um, Well, we know that lots of people want to use the Bible, and they do use the Bible, as a matter of fact, to advance their own agenda, especially during an election year. You can find a Bible verse to speak to any topic you want, and it can support you. Um, Now, not surprisingly, when people do use the Bible that way, what they do is they push people away from Jesus and the church. I mean, you can scroll on Facebook on an article and people talking about, well, is that fake news or is it not? And depending on which side you're at, you might see somebody halfway down in the common thread post the Bible verse, and then you'll see that that spurs a side thread. And what you see is that the conversation is never healthy. It's never constructive. It's never pointing someone in the direction of Christ. More often than not, it's actually discouraging them. And it drives a bigger wedge between somebody who needs God. And I believe that people need God and the church and other believers and God. And so um, you can kind of test the fruit of that. When we're using the Bible that way, the fruit is bad or non-existent. What did God intend the Bible to be used for? Let's go back to Paul here in 2 Timothy. He says, God has breathed all life into scripture. He goes on to say, it is useful for teaching us what is true. It is useful for correcting our mistakes. It is useful for making our lives whole again. It is useful for training us to do what is right. By using scripture, the servant of God can be completely prepared to do every good thing. See, so God didn't write the Bible so you'd have an instruction manual or that you would have a ton of stuff to memorize, but rather he has the Bible and has been passed on from generation to generation to transform our lives inside and out. Your life, my life, our lives. That is what the living word of God, this Bible is supposed to to do. The words that we read in the Bible, the New Testament and Old Testament are useful for teaching, for correcting, for making our lives whole, for training and prepared to do every good thing. The Bible isn't just a collection of writings historically that we can look back and say, this is the origin of our faith, but rather it's a vehicle in which God present day works in our hearts and in our lives. We don't read the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible to check something off of our to-do list. We don't do it for just mere cognitive growth. We read it because we experience the breath of God, his living word in our lives. And over and over again, I've experienced that in my own life. When I hear about the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and I see that those murders have gone unpunished, Habakkuk's cry for justice resonates so deeply inside of me. He says, how long, O Lord, must I cry for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. I feel that. I feel God's spirit grieving with me as I look around and I say, why is there so much violence and injustice? In the midst of a global pandemic, I remind myself that none of us could have predicted 2020 or what's going to happen next week, Um, but God could. And according to Paul, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. I experience peace in knowing that 
I don't believe God started or caused COVID-19, but I believe that God is big enough to work a global pandemic and a health crisis for the good of people. Again, I don't think he caused it, but I think that he's saying this is the present day situation and he is trying to work it for our good. And of course, he'll succeed. Um, I said trying, but that wasn't the right word. And many of you know, because I do not hide it, that I've had an anxiety disorder, originally diagnosed when I was about 12 years old. And when I feel anxious or I worry about something that is completely out of my control or perhaps something that's in my control, I remember Jesus's words in Matthew 6, don't worry about any of these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. See, I did struggle with the Bible, and was it reliable? Was it credible? Could we trust the documents that we have today? And as I began to study it, I just kept finding more and more and more and more evidence that continued to check out. And I'm so thankful that I did because when I'm going through really rough times, this living word of God uplifts my spirit. It gives me peace and comfort, and I encounter the one true God when reading it. I love the way one theologian puts it. He says, the Bible doesn't say, look at me. It says, look through me. When we study the Bible, we encounter the living God. And when we look through the Bible, we see Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says, you have your heads in the Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you'll miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me and I'm standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Again, it keeps going back to this idea that, yes, the Bible is is legit, it's credible, it's reliable, it checks out, but we do not read the Bible. We do not study the Bible for the sake of doing it. But rather, when we look into the Bible and we look through the Bible, we see Jesus. And he says, I am the point. The most important thing about the Bible is that it points us to Christ. Now, perhaps the best way to find out if the Bible is reliable is to test it. And it's going to be a test that I call the read it and live it challenge. This week, would you commit to setting an alarm on your phone or a reminder on an app to read your Bible once a day? After you read it, can you take 30 seconds or a minute to reflect on what you read? And then can you take another 30 seconds or minute to think about how you're going to respond, to see what happens, to test if the Bible proves to be reliable? I think it's a great test that we should all do. And it's not my idea, though. I got to give credit where credit is due. Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak of my own. He says, kick the tires, try it, listen to what I say, live it out and see for yourself if it comes from God or if it comes from a man who's claiming to be God. It goes back to this idea that not even Jesus thought you needed to be naive or mentally check out to be one of his followers. We don't have to do that today either. Jesus explicitly says, try out what I say and see if it proves to be from God. And I've always wondered, as a church planter, part of why I started a church was I had this concept of what if we took Jesus seriously? 
What if Jesus actually meant what he said? Let's try that this week. Let's read the Bible, reflect on what it said, and respond in action. Now, you can do this with an actual Bible, but I found that people do this much better with the YouVersion Bible app. Um, people who have been at our church a long time will probably roll their eyes right now because they've heard me talk about this so much. But if you're new to Madison Church, I love the YouVersion Bible app. It's free, and there are no ads. You can read the Bible in any translation. Absolutely free. I mentioned that. And they also have Bible reading plans from really great authors, theologians, and speakers. Um, One of the things that I like is that you can read it with other people. And I have found that that's actually a really good way to get other people to read the Bible is to do it in community with accountability. It's also why we encourage everyone to be in a small group. Small groups are where we get together during the week for about an hour, hour and a half. And we talk about things that are in the Bible. And my goal for our church is that every week we would have more people in small groups or engaging in small groups than we have engaging our online or in-person services. That's just how important that we think small groups are. So if you're not yet in a small group, if you're watching or listening online, all that information is at the top of the page. And um, we would love to have you be a part of our small groups this week. And so download that Bible app. Okay. Uh, I don't know how often you carry your Bible with you, but you probably always have your phone with you. So if you have the app on your phone, you'll always have the Bible with you. You can meet other people on the Bible app, read plans together, join a small group. And this is how you're going to test the Bible by living it out. Now, if you have some questions or skeptical about the reliability of the Bible, um, again, you are not alone. And I hope that you'll keep engaging by the Bible, God, and our church. Let's end on this quote. It is a mistake to look at the Bible to close a discussion. The Bible seeks to open one. That's William Coffin. This talk that we had today, Making Sense of God, Part 6, does not close the discussion of the Bible. Absolutely not. It continues a discussion that God is seeking to open with you and with me through the Bible. It's the continuation of the conversations that God wants to have with us. And anyone who uses the Bible to try to end a conversation about God, Jesus, faith, spirituality, or the Bible is misusing the Bible. Let's read and live the teachings of Jesus, the way that they were meant to be used. And if we earnestly engage the words of the Bible, I believe we will find the one true living Jesus there.